Welcome to Talk Tennis, a podcast created specifically for you, the tennis fanatic. Join us each week as we work to elevate your game both on and off the court. We will deliver fresh episodes to keep you up to date with tennis trends and technologies, as well as exclusive interviews with industry experts, current and former pros, and so much more. Here's your host, Michelle. Hello, Talk Tennis listeners. I hope this episode finds you feeling healthy and happy and sane and active during this time. Before we start, I just wanted to let you know about some of the amazing deals that we have going on across the world on our three separate websites. At Tennis Warehouse, buy the Adidas Game Court for both men and women for only $39.94. They're comfortable, light, and a great value for recreational players. Plus, they look awesome on and off the court. Be sure to find that deal at TennisWarehouse.com. Then over at Tennis Warehouse Europe, right now they have select Nike Air Zoom Vapor 10s priced under 80 euros. Go stock up now at TennisWarehouseEurope.com. In Australia, over at Tennis Only, right now the Wilson Pro Staff 97L is priced at $99. There aren't very many, so if you're interested in this lighter version of Roger Federer's racket, go make some moves and make it yours at TennisOnly.com.au. Be sure to keep checking our websites for more insane deals. Now, I'm sure some of you are experiencing some of the ups and downs of this quarantine life that I am, and I know today was a rougher day, but thankfully to my guest, he always has a way of putting a smile on my face and making me laugh, and we had a really good time chatting in this episode about some of his favorite matches to go back and rewatch and all things tennis, so I hope you guys enjoy it. I always love having Mark Boone with me, and he's always a fun person to just have a chat with, whether it's about life or tennis or all things in between. So if you guys need anything from me, any questions, any comments, anything you'd specifically like to hear, please email me at podcast at tennis-warehouse.com. Now let's go talk some tennis. Welcome to Talk Tennis. Today with me talking about some throwback matches, I have Mark Boone. Thanks for joining me. Likewise. I uh, like the little uh, thing there in the lower corner saying intuitive guest. I am <laughs> most flattered at that. So with the bullseye on me, I'll try and live up to that title. There we go. And we're all still quarantined at this point as we're recording. So how are you doing? How, let's do a quick little check-in <laughs> mentally and <laughs> physically, all of the things. Well, like everybody else, or hopefully everyone else, we're trying to do what we can to flatten the curve. You know, these are all phrases uh, that are just becoming household phrases now that I never really had to think about too much. I know. Uh, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm sure I'm driving my daughter absolutely stir crazy. She's probably over uh, hanging out with me for such close proximity and long durations of time. <laughs> um, but, but overall, you know, you're just trying to adapt and uh, get through this and, and get back to a, a more healthier state. I would say this room uh, where Jose and I are sitting right now is empty, devoid of all the personality that's typically in here. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would say the thing I miss most is just the communication that we have in here. And, you know, no more knuckle clicks, no more fist bumps, hugs, yeah. handshaking. Uh, those are the things that I'm noticing most that I miss. So. Yeah, no, <laughs> I hear you. I definitely consider myself sometimes more extroverted and it's been tough for me to be <laughs> in my place working by myself. <laughs> um, yeah, so I feel you. Um, something I've been asking everyone, if you had to build your quarantine must-haves, you could only have one racket, one string, and one pair of shoes, what would they be? 
One racket, one string, one pair of shoes. Any tension that I wish, huh? Yeah. Okay. For right now. Um, wow, I'm going gel res eight. Uh, that That's shoe been popular. Out, out of the box comfort. You know, a little more plush and heavy than the other one, but not a clunky shoe. Mm -hmm. So if I was going to have a end of the world uh, quarantine shoe, yeah, I would probably pick that one and, and maybe go down <laughs> a half size than what I did last time. Uh, frame. I'm going E Zone 98 plus. Nice. Uh, that frame I seem to get a lot out of the older I get, the more I like the longer length and the less overall mass of a tennis racket. And then you guys are going to think this is like a paid testimonial or something, but I'm going with hyper G that the string pretty <laughs> much checks boxes, dots, eyes, crosses, T's. It does everything that a poly, uh, that I would want a poly to do. You know, it gives me a nice, uh, arcing ball, tight rotation, and, uh, it seems to maintain its tension a reasonable length of time. And it's not an uncomfortably, uh, stiff monofilament. So yeah, it pretty much does what it's supposed to for me. Nice. Those are good answers. And then we're just going to get into it and talk about some great matches to go rewatch for everyone listening that wants to dig into some matches. So first things first, favorite rivalry. Wow. Um, I'm going to go, there's just so many to pick from. That's the beautiful thing about tennis. Uh, there, there's, you know, multitude of ups and downs, emotional matches, crazy uh, endings. And I know one of those questions was, you know, maybe a match that you would have uh, rather seen end a little bit differently. Uh, but I, I would say overall, hmm, Edberg Lendl was one of my favorites to watch. I'm not quite the tennis historian that maybe Troy is, but you know, I'm pretty <laughs> nerdy in that way. And I watched a lot of this as it happened when, you know, Troy was a little younger and maybe not even around at that time. <laughs> so the Edberg Lendl thing for me kind of uh, indicated a big transition from just being a great tennis player and using what you kind of had naturally kind of given to you and train, uh, fitness, diet. Lendl was on a bike. Edberg was on a bike. Uh, those guys were always trying to up the level of fitness and no knocks to a player like uh, McEnroe, probably one of the more gifted ever. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, when I lived down in L.A., I used to hit at the courts he allegedly used to practice on. And the running joke was he was never there. So it was practicing <laughs> on his courts that he never really practiced on. Um, yeah, so I really like the contrast between Lendl, ground stroke king. Uh, I'm not going to say he couldn't hit a volley to save his life. Uh, but he was definitely not as comfortable near the net as he was at the backcourt. And the fitness level definitely showed he could grind from the backcourt. And Edberg had that little more of a contrasting style where he chipped the backhand a lot more, uh, used every opportunity to come to the net. And uh, the overall head-to-head uh, -head was you know, dominated by Lendl. But overall, uh, Edberg won some key matches, that kind of thing. And I also really liked the uh, rivalry between Edberg and Becker. So it was kind of a hard one to choose between the two. Mm -hmm. um, I know with Becker, uh, Becker kind of had the uh, upper hand. I think it was something like a 25 to 10 head-to-head. But three out of four Grand Slam uh, finals, Edberg beat him and uh, had a really good record that way. I think he got him in uh, 88 or 89 at uh, Wimbledon in four sets, which is just okay. a fantastic match. So, yeah, I really like how fit those guys were. And from there, you could see a transition uh, for more off-court training. You know, I just feel like, especially at my age, the more you play, the more you need to train. You can't just take all that to the court. It kind of wears you down. You need to do mm -hmm. something off the court and bring that back to the uh, the on-court. And that, to me, was the beginning 
of that. And you see the Monfis, the Djokovic's, the Federer's, all these people who are, are very uh, regimented in terms of their off-court training and bring that uh, to the tennis court and have raised tennis to a level that, you know, I, I look at it and go, where does it go from here? It's a, at an incredibly high level. And I think it has a lot to do with kind of the beginnings of like Edberg, Lendl, and this kind of uh, off-court fitness and diet thing. So those are my probably favorite rivalries, Edberg, Lendl, and uh, Edberg Becker. A lot of good nice. Matches. Yeah. And a couple of years back, we saw Edberg working with Federer. That's right. I don't know what he's up to. I'm sure he's probably still somewhere near tennis. Uh, from what I understand, yes. And uh, he's just a quiet guy. I know some people took that as lack of resolve, but I just looked at it as he was just a, a, a kind of a gentleman, which Swedes, you know, if you're going to stereotype a Swede, they seem to be pretty icy, uh, down to earth. You had no Joachim Nystrom, Mats Wielander, uh, a mm -hmm. lot of players like that kind of had a similar disposition. And maybe I liked him so much because I was the complete opposite of that. I <laughs> couldn't keep my emotions on track. So I think I, uh, you know, kind of admired people who had it a little more under control that way. Yeah, I, I feel you. <laughs> um, <laughs> from there, I'm going to ask you about the craziest, weirdest match that you can recall. <laughs> well, again, it's like you could just dig into a bag of crazy, weird matches and just blindly pull one out and it would be great conversation. Yeah. Um, I will go ahead and bring up one that uh, maybe a lot of tennis warehouse uh, patrons or uh, fans ha are not aware of. And uh, <laughs> a lot of people are aware that Andy Gerst uh, used to work here and he decidedly uh, wanted to spread his wings elsewhere. And in 2017, he kind of struck up a relationship with Bethany Maddox-Sands. She was always a dominant doubles player and then seemed to be having some success playing singles. Maybe it was a coincidence, but it seemed to come around the same time that Andy <laughs> appeared on the scene. And the irony was, uh, I think it was you and I and everyone was here in the room and we were watching that uh, Christea match against Maddox-Sands at Wimbledon. And it's just a, a, a day uh, in the life of T-Dub. Andy is uh, leaving on this day and we're having a savory sweet buffet for him. So everyone's gathered up things, brought it here, <laughs> say farewell to a, a great guy, a good friend. And uh, it, it, the irony of it was Maddox takes that step to the net and then she collapses her leg. Ironically, at that very moment, Andy was in his car driving from his house en route to come to work for his final day here. Mm -hmm. So we're all looking at the screen going, holy diamonds. She just took a spill and that's just awful for her career and, you know, playing tennis, you need great knees, hips and ankles. So this is like <laughs> devastating. And then you had to couple it with, oh my gosh, does Andy even know yet? Um, he's not here. We've got the buffet set up. This is his last day. Farewell. And then he walks in the door, literally oblivious to everything. And Britt and you, and we're all looking at him like, do you know what's happening? <laughs> he has no clue. And then we get to tell him uh, that, you know, maybe this thing uh, with uh, Maddox Sands is on hold for a bit, being that she just took a spill. And he really had no clue. So that little seam of time, he's en route here. We watched it. Um, that is one of the craziest, weirdest matches I've ever seen. And uh, I'm so happy that Maddox Sands has made a pretty good recovery and has, you know, begun to dominate as a doubles player and, and do all right playing singles as well. But yeah, out of many bizarre matches and outcomes yeah. I've seen, um, that is one of the weirder for sure. Everything's all right. I know uh, Andy spread his wings elsewhere, doing fine. Uh, that was a strange day, strange match. <laughs> sure. Wow, good. that was good memory and good call on that. Um, 
And if you go back and listen to the podcast that we did with Andy, he actually does talk about that a little bit. So same story, definitely a weird thing. I think he got here and like checked his phone and a bunch of people were like, oh my God, did you see what happened? And he had no idea. So it was for sure weird and crazy and to paint the picture perfectly for everyone at Tennis Warehouse, we do watch the Tennis Channel basically 24-7 or ESPN, right. whatever whatever tennis is on, it's on. So we always have tennis on. And yeah, that was insane. Um, from there, what about the most emotional match that you can remember or that you recall? Wow. Well, uh, you could probably look at some of my matches and say, <laughs> wow, those are pretty emotional matches, Mark. Um, and, and you wouldn't have to dig far. There, again, there's a ton of them. And I'll go ahead and pick out Crickstein, fourth round. I was at 91 okay. U.S. Open quarterfinal. And yes. you know who the other person is, Mr. Jimmy Connors. And yes. I've, I've had some personal experience with him over the years uh that is no lie that guy would by far yeah he dislikes losing more than he likes to win he stated that himself and i would uh, back up that assertion but yeah that match was amazing um i know a little bit of the backstory i've got my espn 30 for 30 collection of videos and i've watched <laughs> that a few times since i watched that match and Connors, you know, at the twilight of his career in his late 30s, uh, had, I think, taken Christine under his wing and they had become, to a certain extent, hitting partners and maybe even personal friends. And I think it really took Christine back when that whole thing shifted and he began to kind of pull the crowd on his side and, you know, just kind of bully Crickstein around and play well. Um, that's almost like a playbook uh, from McEnroe is to kind of, you know, yeah. distract uh, the other player from what they're doing, get the crowd all riled up, presumably on their side. And it kind of shifts the momentum of the match. Um, it was amazing uh, to see that match. And I, I have to say, I kind of feel for Crickstein. Uh, he said over the years that anytime there's a rain delay at the U.S. Open, guess what match they love to show. <laughs> so he gets to like replay this thing over and over and over oh again. And uh, from what I understand, that was an emotional enough of a match to where him and Connors really don't speak that much anymore. So, wow. um, you know, I don't know what matters more winning or keeping some friends around. I guess you have to uh, call that into question, but yeah, that was a very emotional match and uh, talk about anticlimactic. As soon as uh, Jim Courier saw that he was like, well, all right, I'm going to have to put an end to that. And uh, yeah, it looked like he actually felt a little bit uh, remorseful for putting an end of it, but yeah, he did. I think it was straight sets the very next round, but yeah, that was a pretty emotional match among, among many others. Yeah. That's definitely one. I think that I even would like to go back and rewatch for sure. And then with that question, that leads us straight into what's one of your favorite matches that was before the year 2000, because we've had all these millennials on <laughs> and they oh, weren't boy. even playing tennis before the year 2000. So gosh, again, I was like toiling. I got all my notes here and yeah, you can name a few. <laughs> I'm going to say one of my favorites is a Becker Edberg final. Um, that's the 88, uh, I believe it was the 88 Wimbledon. And again, I think it was a 25 and 10 overall head to head between Becker and Edberg. Um, however, three out of the four finals that they met in in Grand Slams, Edberg took it. Um, I just like the icy cool flow of uh, Edberg and how he would chip the backhand and come into the net. His serve was a little quirky, but he was really able to get it done. Um, an impressive uh, win over Becker, and he'd already won in 85, and I think at the end of that match, he 
politely asked Edberg if he could just touch the trophy to remember what it felt <laughs> like it had been some time. Uh, but those are just awesome matches. And, and just looking at it back then, you know, things uh, will never be what they were. You had John Tyriak, the Romanian kind of agent slash coach for Becker. And he always had to kind of bring, you know, wherever Becker went, Tyriak was there. And it would always pan the camera over there. And he was just such a colorful, interesting character a little edgy. I'm not going to say, uh, well, I guess I did shady, uh, <laughs> at times. And then you had Tony Pickard, British, you know, pro player who was uh, at the time Edberg's coach. And it was just these contrasting styles between coaching and player. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's something that you just don't see as much of now. A lot of coaches are probably, uh, a little more soft-spoken, um, these days. And, and, uh, there would be a few exceptions, but yeah, I really enjoyed that dynamic, of it wasn't just the the player's backstory there was a lot of you know they had their entourage behind them and that was a pretty important part of it as well so yeah i really enjoyed that match among uh, a lot of those uh, becker edward clashes yeah becker agassi for that matter those were some really good ones as well we gotta dive deep for some of these becker matches i need to like go back and rewatch. i want to relive the 90s and like teach these millennials like <laughs> remember what tennis was <laughs> yeah it's a huge transition um come along way from a haircut and a forehand with Agassi that's for sure that is for sure <laughs> that's gonna be that's how we're gonna market this podcast <laughs> come a long way from a haircut and a forehand I love it what is a match that you wish would have ended differently well obviously I'm gonna you know just say Maddox Sands I wish he hadn't taken a spill <laughs> things had uh, gone a little bit differently there um, I don't really have too many matches that I feel like I wish it had ended uh, differently than it did because I love the overall unpredictability of a match. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've seen a, a couple I know in a previous uh, podcast we did. I talked about Nalbandian and uh, mm -hmm. Nadal's rivalry, and they had a pretty good one from the juniors. Nalbandian kind of owned the show, uh, especially on hard courts. And there wasn't a lot of fear playing Nadal, where I see a lot of other players step out on the court, and it looks like mentally they're already down 0-3, mm -hmm. uh, where Nalbandian was like, I'm you know, I'm not fooled by any of the shrubbery. I'm just going to take it to you. And, uh, that one match that I spoke about, um, uh, night match in, uh, I think it was Oh nine. And that was, I believe a fourth round match as well at the BMP. And that was, uh, I think it was six, four in the first with now Bandy. And he was up five two thirty. love one of those crazy, like that Lendl McEnroe moment where he's just about to close it out and then takes that March from two, five back. And, uh, Lendl ended up getting, or I'm sorry, uh, Nadal ended up getting now Bandy and in the second set in a tiebreaker and that just broke him uh after that it went six zero and then there was a couple of years later um i think it was 2012 they met again in a day match and it was the same scenario where nalbandian got him the first set uh nadal charged back and then just hammered him i think it was ended up being six four in the third but from there you could see it was just a downhill kind of surge so those are some of the, the matches that I, I definitely um, love a lot. I, I don't really wish there was a different outcome. It's just I've been on both sides of that, as you probably have. You've been up 5-2. You've been down 2-5. And that's kind of a dangerous position to be in. And though I may have a, a player that I favor more, I love it when somebody's able to get out of that headlock or arm bar and wiggle yeah. their way free and find a way. And th those are probably the, the traits of tennis that I like the most. And that's probably the issue I have with no ad scoring because I feel like the ad is one of the primary 
essences of tennis. You know, mm-hmm. you, you've got to close it out. You know, there's no like a basketball game or a timer or anything like that. You, you have to close it out and it could go on forever. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like that aspect of it, of the seesaw matches. And there's been some great seesaw matches over the years, no doubt about it. Yeah, totally. And then I was going to ask you what your favorite match of all time is. That's so generic and such a big question. And there's a player that I know we talked about leading up to this podcast that has not been brought up yet. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to bring him up as well. Maybe I'm assuming you probably know who I'm talking about, but maybe not. He's an American and has a big serve. And <laughs> Wow, I am definitely waiting for, uh, you know, American ladies do seem to be doing pretty okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're definitely waiting for that American male to come through i'm gonna go ahead and just put that back to you on on the person basically i I hope this answers the question this is probably my favorite match of all time i guess you could say or or tournament i looked this up on the uh internet this morning in the early 70s it actually turned out to be 1976 my dad i grew up in a tennis family and my dad got these tickets to the i believe it was called the first annual santa barbara tennis patrons professional classic and it no was way. at Robertson <laughs> Robertson's UCSB gym. I know you're like, gosh, you're a dinosaur. 76. <laughs> no. So it was amazing. It was inside UCSB's basketball gym, Robertson gym. They had laid out two carpeted uh, courts and then they had everyone sitting in the gym stand. So mm-hmm. kind of the way Troy and I really enjoy going to the BMP and watching the practice courts. To me, these exhibitions are some of my favorites and there's not enough of them because the schedule uh, for tournaments is so packed. So to mm-hmm. see them at the practice courts to see these shots that they won't use on match point or not as often. And just, just, just to hear them banter around and, and look like they, they're doing what I do. I love tennis. They love to play tennis. You can kind yeah. of see that. And that match uh, had, if you could believe this, Charlie Passarell. I believe that was a <laughs> nice. previous director of tennis at the BMP Indian Wells for years and years, a, a previous pro player, Marty Reeson, Dennis Ralston, BJ Armitrage, Cliff Drysdale, and Jeff Borowiak. So I was just a very small kid. I don't think at the time when I was sitting there, I didn't realize what I was viewing. Yeah. But as time rolled on, that was like a kind of a precipitous moment for me. Um, I was already playing tennis because I was in a tennis family, but that was a precipitous moment for me to really dig in and play more tennis. I really enjoyed it. I realized shortly thereafter I was witnessing tennis history. Uh, That was an amazing match for the life of me. I can't remember who won. It was doubles and singles and it was round robin. Uh, But just the fact that I got to watch those guys are kind of the pioneers that a lot of other players uh, are standing on their shoulders. So yeah, I'm pretty old. If I can remember that, at least I have a decent memory. Um, it was amazing. No, it's bringing flashbacks for me too. And I don't know if you remember or if you were the same, but we grew up kind of in the same area or I grew up down in LA and you were down there at the same time. And in the 80s, I remember there used to be a lot of exhibitions at local clubs to the point where, you know, all the club members were invited, the players would play a match and then like there'd be a hit for prizes and like photo ops. There weren't that many people that were there, you know, and the pros that were invited were pretty recognizable names. And it was I remember I have like (laughs) I have pictures and stuff like that from literally the 80s, 90s, early 90s. And 
those are great memories. And like you said, to be able to be in the presence of some of those players back then was really cool. And nothing like that happens anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I, I I remember at the forum in the 80s, maybe early 90s, they used to have a lot of exhibitions there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it'd be like a McEnroe-Sampras exhibition, play a set. And then in between, I remember seeing the Williams sisters come out as very little girls and play like a tiebreaker. And then I think yeah. they played a tiebreaker set. Those are the things, you know, I don't get me wrong. Tennis is being played at a higher level than I've ever seen it. And I, I often ask myself, where, where could it get any better? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's going to keep evolving. <laughs> uh, but it's at such a high level. And I, I feel like the only thing that would be missing is just that little more of a relaxed atmosphere um, and attitude from some of the players because it literally is a grind. You're grinding through the points, through the games, through the matches, through the season, it is yeah. a literal grind. So to just take the heat off and and have some fun, um, you know, I, I'm amazed with players like Monfils, who seems to always be able to manage to put on a great show, um, attitude, just everything seems like a pretty giving, sharing person. Those are typically the players or matches that I really like, where mm-hmm. they they leave it all there, and yeah, they're competitive, but there's a kind of a brevity between the other person. They realize they need each other, yeah, to uh, to to play at this level, and you know. I can just go on and on about uh, Nadal's and Federer's rivalry or Agassi and Sampras and that kind of thing. And uh, hopefully that properly segues me back to you in terms of that American with a big serve. Well, I was going to say, I hadn't heard Andy Roddick's name mentioned yet, but I feel like there were some interesting matchups from him during his career and maybe some matches that he wished would have ended differently from him. But uh, he was always a bit fiery. (laughs) Well, then I I think this is something else I mentioned uh, on a previous podcast. One of my favorite matches that I got to see live was a 05 Roddick uh, Lubachik final Davis Cup. And uh, that was down at the Home Depot Center in Carson, mm-hmm. California. And that was great. Yeah. And that was my initial foray into monofilaments. You know, I had never heard of anything like that. And that was the talk of the match of the tournament. What was that Luxalon stuff that yeah. Mr. Lubachik had in that head extreme? <laughs> and uh, by the end of that match, I could clearly see that that string was absorbing a lot of energy of Roddick's 130 plus mile an hour serve. Um, I don't know what that's like, uh, but I could imagine if I did have that serve, I, it would annoy me to see how many returns were coming back to the middle of the court at the baseline. Uh, so that was another good match, just five sets. And, and that really alerted me to the change that we were going to see um, in, in terms of how the polyester or monofilament string changed tennis a lot. Yeah, um, that, that was another one. But yeah, there's just so many good matches. Uh, so, so many good players. Uh, need to have more time on a podcast to discuss. I know. (laughs) I know. We could go on for hours, get very specific with our categories and all of that. One thing about Roddick, can I say one last thing about Roddick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, when, from the onset, I was like, wow, looking at Merritt Safin too, I kind of looked, I was like, wow, there's the future of tennis. How's anyone going to stop this guy? And then along came Federer. If, you know, Fed and a couple (laughs) other players hadn't been there, imagine the kind of uh, player that they would have become, the kind of record that they have. And with uh, Roddick, I really appreciate and was entertained by his post-match interviews. 
really self-effacing, would roll himself under the bus. And I, I think I'm known around here for kind of self-deprecating <laughs> sense of humor at times as well. So I can relate uh, when people would ask him about the rivalry between him and Fed. He's like, you know, it's 0-11. What kind of a rivalry is yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is great sense of humor. Uh, I really appreciate uh, that that kind of brevity and candor. So, yeah, I, I give uh, Roddick a lot of props. It's kind of the same. I, I really enjoyed watching Mike Tyson's uh, post-match interviews as much or more than watching the matches just to hear what he would have to say. And I, I kind of put Roddick in that same category in terms of post-match interviews. Great ones. Yeah. Um, for me, my opinion of Roddick was kind of different because I was at Wild at the time when he started becoming big and popular and started winning more tournaments and transitioning from the IT to the pros and uh he was a lot he was friends with a lot of my academy mates and so it was kind of like a very he was very normal to us it was not a big deal like we would see marty fish we would see andy roddick at itfs it was no big deal so then when he got big and top you know top american player it was kind of like eh it's just, you know, it's right. just Andy. And even back then, I remember at Wild, this is in the 90s. Yeah, late 90s. We still had like instant messenger. So it was like so exciting when one of the pro players got on to the instant messenger and you could talk to them on the computer. I remember Marty Fish was on there, James Blake, Andy Roddick. So it was just very like, it was cool to see those guys kind of break through and be the leaders of the American players at that time. Absolutely. Those guys uh, had some great results. I, I uh, don't know why I didn't include Blake in there in some of my favorite matches. He's had some great ones over the years as well. Yeah, Troy did talk about Blake and his, of course. So we got we got some love for James Blake also always. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Wish I still had my cool blue J Block hat. I yes. bought that about eight ten years ago. I swore I'd never sweaty it up, you know, and have to yeah, throw yeah, it away. Yeah. Inevitably, I ran out of hats, so I used the J Block hat. Those are my That's favorite so hats out of here. <laughs> nice. I love it. Um, let's wrap things up with some non pro tennis match questions, but just some normal Mark Boone questions. Please. What would you call your signature shot on the court? Ooh, uh maybe down the line forehand or backhand slice. Those seem to be two shots that I am pretty comfortable with. Um, I'm probably a little more consistent with the backhand slice that sets up the forehand, but yeah, those would be my two bread and butter shots for the most part. Nice. Now this is a question I like, and I know you've been with the company for a bit. If you were not working for tennis warehouse, what would you be doing? I ah, just give it the same answer as Shaq when he was asked what he'd be doing if he wasn't <laughs> playing basketball, he'd be playing basketball. <laughs> so yeah, it, you know, all I would... roads lead back. <laughs> Uh, tennis has afforded me a lot of opportunities uh, throughout my life. I'm just grateful, um, you know, probably a little more grateful of everything during this whole COVID-19 situation. But yeah, overall, I, I'm just grateful to be here. This is a great place. Um, and what I would be doing if I wasn't here, um, something that would enable me to subsidize, continue playing tennis. Uh, no doubt about it. Before I worked here, I was at a nuclear power plant and that was great. It allowed me to still play tennis. Uh, I just wasn't as close to the kind of the pulse or the heartbeat of it all. So, yeah, um, to be working here, it's been a privilege. Who knew that uh, Planet Earth's biggest distributor of all things tennis would be in my same zip code backyard. So, yeah, this is uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely grateful and thankful for our company at this moment. And um, how have you been handling the quarantine? Are you How has your schedule changed or your lifestyle changed? Have you changed workouts? Are you meditating more? Is there anything? <laughs> like that you've noticed in your personal life? I'm trying to do things more solid 
solitary and, uh, you know, to a large degree, the social distancing thing comes pretty easy to me. I have a teenage daughter and, you know, in terms of social distancing, she's real good at keeping her distance from me. If we go out <laughs> and like, like acknowledging that I'm her dad anyway. So this is, uh, it's not that big of a switch for me. Mm. Um, but I am going, uh, not crazy by any means, but you begin to realize, uh, when things are taken away, what you had mm-hmm. and what I had was the option, you know, not even just doing it, but just having the freedom if I want to, to go do it. And now I feel like, you know, this could be a detriment to mine or somebody else's health if I behave what normally wouldn't be selfish. But at this point, we got to reassess, you know, the definition of, of what selfishness is. So I'll ride my bike by myself. No bike rides with friends. Um, we are playing some tennis. Uh, some of my friends are wearing a glove on the ball hold hand. And mm-hmm. we make sure that there's no high fives, no knuckle clicking. And uh, we wash our hands prior. Uh, and I've even heard of uh, some of my friends using separate cans of balls. So they use one can of ball for serving and then switch to another can when they're serving. So no one's really touching the same ball. Okay. Um, so just trying to do the best I can. Uh, we want to get past this and uh, a- anything I can do to join in, uh, which is basically my attitude here at work. You know, I'm a bit of a power forward. Uh, there's not as much going on, but there's a like a lower level of everything is still going on. So I'm just trying to help out whatever it is in terms of uh, whether it's swinging a racket or picking and packing one and getting it out of here in a timely banner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got lots of people that call in or email and they're feeling probably a lot like we are and realizing that, you know, maybe golf and tennis are some of the safer activities to play. Um, they are calling in here. They want to get out to their tennis courts and safely get some activity. So um, kind of happy that we're here to, to foster after that. It, mainly all the calls and emails that have come through are very positive, very supportive, understanding that we're all in this together. And, you know, there may be delays, but we're not, you know, in the business of having people kick their tennis habit. We want to get what you like, what you need in a timely manner. So um, it's it's been good. I, I would rather have all these good things happen under different circumstances. Um, but overall, I think people are, are making the right choice, you know, overall and just trying to hunker down, flatten that curve. Yeah. Yeah. So, for sure. Yeah. I just miss you guys. That's yeah. it. It's <laughs> just really weird not having all the, the laughter and whatnot. It's a little bit more serious here um, with, without you around and oh. uh, Chris and all the others. It's just, yeah, it's just down to business. <laughs> I know. I know. It's definitely a different vibe, even just working from home. It's just, it's not yeah. as fun for sure. Now going from that serious question, sorry, <laughs> to, um, who is your current favorite player? And then who is your all-time favorite player? So like current generation, all-time. Wow. There's some really good representatives. I'm always looking for somebody who's like a great ambassador to the sport overall. Not saying I'm a great ambassador, but I can spot one out uh, when I see one. So we got to go with Fed. That's just logical on paper. Um, he... I think any sport or activity would be very fortunate to have a person like that represent that sport or activity. He does mm-hmm. a fantastic job. Um, he's a great example for not just a playing style, but just how to operate decisions, you know, to make the guy seems to have made a, a, a series of very wise decisions and has worked very hard to get where he's at. So I admire that a lot mm-hmm. um, on sheer overall entertainment value. Um, and I guess Fed might even partially agree with this. I love Monfils. Uh, for a guy I don't know, a guy on Monfils, he just seems to have a, a really good disposition and attitude. Obviously, he loves tennis like Fed does. 
Um, I like to see anyone that just really enjoys themselves out there because it can get pretty serious and, you know, your emotions can get the best of you mm -hmm. and trying to tether yourself to the original reasons why you played can sometimes be one of my bigger challenges. So I really admire uh, when somebody's able to do that. So yeah, Fed's just a great example. Monfees, I can name some others, but those are, those are two of my favorite all time uh, favorites. Ash, I'm going to throw in there as well. Anyone that does more um, outside of their sport, you know, takes uh, what they've gotten through their sport and then try to further that, pay it forward and help other people out. You, you're going to have a great deal of respect and admiration for me. So I'll go ahead and uh, give a shout out for Mr. Arthur Ashe as well. Nice. That's awesome. Now, do you have any favorite athletes outside of the sport of tennis? <sighs> Man, Michael Jordan. I mean, I know his uh, trash talking bordered on psychosis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he's probably one of the most entertaining and uh, gifted athletes that I've ever seen. Um, you know, that didn't translate as well to baseball, but just overall the way he showed up in basketball and dominated and set the tone for a lot of other players work ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, right on. I don't know that this is a number two or a number one, but Kobe Bryant as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's another guy that we kind of watched grow up in front of our eyes, you know, straight out mm -hmm. of high school, going to the Lakers. Um, you know, we all, um, make mistakes, but this guy grew, he grew to be, you know, he was an awesome player, but he grew, seemed to grow as a person. And, uh, by the end of it all, he seemed to be giving a great deal back, uh, to what, you know, where he came from and that kind of thing. And, and that to me is probably one of the more important things you realize where you're at. And if you can benefit people, uh, to help them out, get to maybe not as high a level you're at, but a higher level than where they're currently at. Um, that that's it for me. So yeah, I, I definitely could name a few others. Uh, but those two come to mind for sure. Really nice. appreciate those guys. That's awesome. Now we've been wrapping up the podcast with this question as you know, I think you and I were both kind of chatting. It's a day to day, week to week, hour to hour kind of feeling lately. And some days are harder than others. And we're all just trying to navigate it the best we can. But what is the best thing that has come out of this quarantine time for you and I know you've already mentioned gratitude and stuff like that so yeah this is the first time in my life um 52 years old that I've ever seen such a vast majority of people actually unite and do something to make a change mm -hmm. I know we tied a yellow ribbon around our uh antennas on our cars during desert storm in the in the 90s um and you know that's great but this is something that we see that it's allowed us to see that we're all connected. No one's disconnected mm -hmm. and that we, to get something done, um, can do it very effectively if we do it together. Uh, that, that, that unitedness is something that I, I don't see enough. I see a little bit, maybe in my opinion, of a single serving life, single serving friends. Um, that's taken it directly from Fight Club. Uh, I I just think that this was a great example um, of unitedness and maybe we can kind of go forward and realize that, that we can make changes and it's not such an individual thing. We are all in this together. So, you know me, I can be negative when things are positive <laughs> and when things aren't that great, I'll try and pull some kind of piece of sea glass or a gem out of it. And to me, that's the gem. You know, we got a lot of opportunity here. And uh, I, I think uh, it, it's given us all a, a chance to pause and go, well, you know, was everything just the way it should be? Or maybe were we like a little too focused on getting somewhere? We're not even sure where the destination is. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to sound too uh, airy fairy nuts and berries on it, but uh, 
I, I definitely appreciate the the united effort by everyone here um, globally as well. But, you know, I'm, I live here in the U.S. and, and mm-hmm. everyone's got to kind of take care of their own. And I'd like to think of us as one big family. And this uh, kind of gets us closer to that. So I hope it lasts longer. I really want to get rid of this COVID virus immediately yesterday. Yeah. Um, but I do hope that there are some things that kind of resonate um, after it's gone in a positive way. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you're, well, you're too- <laughs> I'm just like, I'm I, don't have, I don't have anything else to add. That was great. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that about wraps it up. Unless you have anything else you would like to add. <laughs> no, I, I really enjoy the podcast. So I'll kind of get back to uh, stuff at the shop. I got Jose right behind me here. Say, tell everyone <laughs> hello. <laughs> um, I definitely will. Uh, you're very missed. And uh, so is everyone else. Thanks for listening and make sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you download your podcast. And I'd love to know how you guys are doing tennis at home. So leave it in a comment or send me an email at podcast at tennis-warehouse.com. And until next time, happy hitting.